0: the Tim's experience with the selling his van to these people is a classic example, I think, to tell you that you never know when that opportunity is going to present itself when you can be a witness and give a testimony of the hope that's within you, but you, you have to be ready because it may happen when you least expect it. Who would have ever thought he would have had that opportunity when he met with somebody to, to sell a vehicle, and yet he did. So let's keep that in mind. Always reminds me of the story, too, when somebody was asked what they believe, and they said, Well, I believe what my church believes. And they said, What's your church believe? He said, Well, my church believes what I believe. What do you and your church believe? We believe the same thing. (laughs) That's not the kind of answer Peter's talking about, okay? Peter's not talking about giving that kind of response. You've got to do a little better than that. This morning, I'd like to take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Now, the book of Ephesians is such a wonderful book. It has six chapters. The first three chapters pretty much deals with doctrinal truths, fundamental foundational truths of our relationship with God and our salvation. And then the last three verses, excuse me, three chapters, uh, go into practical uh, information, teaching us what our response should be, what our duty and responsibilities are in following God in the pathway of discipleship. But I want to take a look at uh, verses eight through twelve in particular this morning. Now he starts off by saying, "Wherefore he saith." Now in the New Testament, when you read an expression like "wherefore he saith," he's talking about God, and he's talking about something that's already been recorded earlier in the Old Testament. And this is important because uh, he's going to quote from Psalm sixty-eight, eighteen. And you go to Psalm sixty-eight, eighteen, and it's not going to speak to you, right? in an audible sound. But yet God is speaking in Psalm sixty eight eighteen. This shows Paul's confidence in the inspiration of the scripture. In other words, Psalm 6818 was written by the Psalmist David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. Wherefore he saith, we read the scripture, it's just like God speaking to us. He is speaking to us. Wherefore he saith, when he led captivity captive on high. Or he, wherefore he saith, uh, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ ascended on high. We read of this ascension in Acts chapter 1. After his resurrection, he spent 40 days on the earth. And after 40 days, he left this earth, this world, and went back to heaven where he came from. Reminds me what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh, virgin birth. That is, Christ taken upon himself, human flesh. with a human nature without sin. That's why he was conceived in the womb of a virgin. He was conceived by the Holy Ghost. So he was God manifest in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit. He was preached among the Gent. He was seen of angels and preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received back up into glory. We have his descension, his life, and his ascension. So here he says, "Wherefore he saith," and again he's quoting from the sixty-eight Psalm, verse eighteen. "Wherefore he saith," when he ascended up on high, he did something. He led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now, he that ascended, he goes on to say, is just he that, first of all, descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now, when he speaks about the lower parts of the earth, I think there's two things to keep in mind. If you go over to the 139th Psalm, you're going to read some marvelous uh, words here concerning uh, the creation of, of all people, how the human... Uh, You know, being able to procreate and multiply and have children, you know, by the power of God. He says, uh, I was fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, when he's speaking about this, it also, I think, has a deeper meaning. I think it has reference to the life of Jesus Christ. I was fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, that's true with every single one of us, it's true with every one of us here this morning. We were fearfully and wonderfully made. When there's a conception, something fearfully and wonderfully is being made by the power of God. Life comes from God. God gave man the ability to multiply, replenish, uh, and be fruitful and replenish the earth. I was fearfully and wonderfully made. He said, I was curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Now I think the psalmist is having reference here to the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came all the way down from heaven and he was curiously wrought, fearfully and wonderfully made when he was conceived in the womb of Mary. But also, when the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, we find he was taken down from the cross after three days and three nights. And he was put into a barred tomb that belonged to Joseph Arimathea. we we'll look over here in the book of Psalms, Psalm 16, a Messianic Psalm, verse 10. And the psalmist here, speaking as if he's Christ himself, he says, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption, thou shalt not leave his soul in hell. Now, oftentimes the word hell means hell. But sometimes the uh, the word hell means grave. And the Lord Jesus Christ was not suffered to see corruption. He was in the tomb for three days and three nights. Let me tell you this. How long was Lazarus in the grave for when Jesus got there? He was in the grave for four days, wasn't he? And when he got there, he told them to roll the stone away. And Martha objected. She said, Behold, he stinketh, because corruption began on day four. The Lord Jesus Christ did not, he was not suffered to see corruption. He was out of there in three days and three nights. This also, I believe, can be applied here. He that ascended is none other than he but descended into the lowest parts of the earth, the virgin womb of Mary and the virgin tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came forth from a virgin womb. He came forth from a virgin tomb. This tomb he came forth from belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. He hewned out in a great rock, and it was brand new. Of course, never been used, had never been occupied, right? Then he says, and he that descended is also he that ascended. Now he's going to reverse it again. He says he ascended above all heavens. Now I believe the Bible teaches three heavens. There is the atmospheric heaven. There is the celestial heaven of the moon and the stars and the sun. And then there's a third heaven that the Apostle Paul refers to in his experience. So he was caught up into what? The third heaven. That's above the atmospheric heaven. That's above the celestial heaven. It's way up there, right? So he ascended above all heavens. Now in the beginning of our text he says he ascended up on high. Now I read about men who went up a high distance in the Bible. I remember Moses went on top of Mount Sinai twice. He was way up there, wasn't he? And I remember reading about Elijah going up on top of Mount Carmel. He ascended on high, but the high that's under consideration here is not Mount Carmel, not Mount Sinai, not the mount that he taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. We're talking about heaven itself, that high. He ascended on high, okay, and he ascended above the heavens that he might fulfill, that he might feel, the Bible says feel, but it literally means fulfill all things. All the types and all the shadows of the Old Testament were fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. All the specific prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ were fulfilled in the person of Christ. He came to fulfill everything that was said of him, written of him, and spoken of him from Genesis to Malachi. Those 39 books of the Old Testament, there's not a book back there. There's not a reference to Jesus Christ in one way or another in a prophecy or in a type or in a shadow. And when Christ came, he proved he was a Messiah because he kept every single one of them. There was not one prophecy that he did not fulfill. There was not one type in the Old Testament uh, that he did not fulfill. He ascended on, on high, he ascended above the heavens that he might feel all things. Now, when he says he led captivity captive, what does he mean by that? He led captivity. Something was in captivity that he led into captivity. He led captivity captive. Well, the expression captivity, he led captive, has reference to you and me. In every child of God, every heir of promise, the bride of Christ, his people, his children. When Adam transgressed God's law, he plunged the entirety of his race, the entirety of the human race from that point forward to the last person born in this world. He plunged them under the law of sin and death. Now that's a bondage of all bondages, right? Now the children of Israel was in bondage and captivity in the land of Egypt and God delivered them out of the land of Egypt. They were his people. They could have never delivered themselves out of there. If God had not intervened and delivered them out of bondage and captivity in the land of Egypt, they would remain there indefinitely. In fact, they would have just stayed there uh, from here on if God had not intervened and went down there and brought them out of there. There's a type in all of this. We find where God did use Moses to go down there and deliver his people out of the land of Egypt. They were his people. The Egyptians were not his people. The Israelites were. It was down in their journey in the land of Egypt for 400 years that they were completely formed and created and developed into the nation that they were when he brought them out of there. And he brought them out without the loss of one. That's amazing, isn't it? The entire nation came out of there. They didn't have any army. They didn't have any weapons. And he brought the entire nation out of there without the loss of one. One was not left behind. He brought them across the Red Sea and into the wilderness totally and completely. He's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who left heaven and came down here being sent by the Father. Moses was called and sent by God and the Lord Jesus Christ being God's beloved Son was sent from heaven into this world right here. He descended into this world, and he led captivity captive when he ascended upon high. Now, to do that, he had to deliver us by destroying anything and everything that would stand between him and his children. We live in a world that is anti-Christian. We live in a world that is totally against God. Now, while we live in the world, we're taught in the scriptures we're not to be of the world, and that's a constant battle. In that's a constant challenge, not to be of this world. Our prayer, our prayer verse this morning, what was it again? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, if you keep yourselves from idols, you have to work at it. You can just drift into idolatry before you know it. Your focus, your attention, your affection can be placed on something far greater than it should before you even realize it. That's why we're reading Colossians 3 and 1. Therefore, if you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Send not your affection on things of this earth here. Now, if it weren't possible for me to do that, that verse wouldn't be there, right? (laughs) Sometimes I think God's people read that and think, well, that that doesn't apply to me. It does apply to you. (laughs) It applies to me. I have affection, and I have control of where that affection goes. Send not your affection on things of this earth, but on things which are above. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, our eyes have to be lifted up for our feelings, our emotions, our our affections should be on the the wonderful Savior, should it not be? Oh, how wonderful He is, how how kind and gracious He is, what a God of compassion, what a God of great love. That loved us, enabled us then to love Him. We love Him because He first loved us. What a principle of truth that is. You love the Lord today, you would never have loved the Lord had He not loved you first. He loved you first and made Himself known to you when He born you of the Spirit of God and placed His divine nature within your heart, within your soul, giving you the ability to respond by prayer and walk by faith and to love Him with all of your heart, and all your mind, and all your soul, and all your strength. Little children, little children, keep yourselves from idols, he says. In the last verse of John chapter 16, and when you read this, remember this is an entire discourse that begins in John 14, John 14, 15, 16. This just before his high priesthood prayer in John 17, before he goes to the garden of Gethsemane in John 18 and then taken and crucified, etc. cetera, in John 19, 20, and 21, his resurrection. So we are getting right toward the end, my friends, of his life before he goes to Calvary. And he gives his disciples an encouraging message. And he said in John chapter 14, he starts it off, little children. <laughs> he says, unto his brethren, he says, uh, he says, uh, you believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. I'm telling you, so many things in this world can trouble your heart. Your heart can be like a raging sea sometimes with all the problems and the trials and the tribulations in it. But I'm changing the same Jesus that spoke peace to that storm when the disciples in that ship on the Sea of Galilee can speak peace to your heart and calm your trials and your tribulations just as easily did that sea there. It was a great storm, the Bible says, a great calm came. The greatness of the calm was in relation to the greatness of the storm, you see. He's able to do that, He's the Prince of Peace. So he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, for in my father's house are many mansions. If not so, I'd have told you so. And I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come and receive you unto myself. What a way to start this message. <laughs> what a way to start this discourse to his disciples. And then you can read the contents of 14, 15, 16. Here's how he ends it. He says unto them, let not your hearts be troubled again. He starts and ends it the same way. Let not your hearts be troubled. He said, in this world ye shall have tribulation. Now that's not a maybe, brother. That's a, that's a sure thing. In this world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I love the be of good cheer expressions in the Bible. Pay attention to them. cause going to tell you something that can change your attitude. You know, there's a saying, uh, you're the only one that can change yourself. But sometimes you change yourself, it changes everything. <laughs> Is that not your experience? You're the only one that can change yourself. But by changing yourself, it can change everybody and everything around you to everything be much, much better. Be of good cheer. Why? Because I've overcome the world. This world we have such a struggle with. He says, I've overcome the world. And therefore, he says, be of good cheer. I'm thankful to preach that to you this morning. The world we live in is a conquered world. It's still here to vex us. Just like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah vexed the spirit of Lot. Lot was not where he was supposed to be. He was in the wrong place. He made a bad decision. He exercised bad judgment. He was one of God's children in the wrong place. It vexed his spirit this world vexes my spirit. It gets worse and worse. It doesn't get better. The Bible says these things shall wax worse and worse, and I see it before my very eyes. Do you not? It used to be kind of slow and creeping. Now it's ra- raging and rushing. <laughs> it just is incredible the things you see, the things you hear, and the attitude of people and what they're trying to push and the agendas and the objectives of the wicked and evil here of this world. It's just incredible. But I can tell you, in the midst of all of that, Jesus can still speak peace to your heart and soul. In the midst of all of that, remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be of good cheer. Why? Because I have overcome the world. Amen. Another one of our enemies, obviously, is the devil himself. In the book of Hebrews 2 and 14, we find the Lord... uh, Take it, well, Paul's speaking about the Lord. He says, for the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he likewise took part of the same. That's when he descended into this lower parts of the earth. For as the children, that's us, who are partakers of flesh and blood, he likewise took part of the same. Man transgressed God's law. It takes man to mend God's law, to satisfy God's law, you see. But when God looked, there was none to help. Twice in Isaiah, we find that expression. We use this one in Isaiah 63, 5. He says, I looked and I wondered that there was none to help. You're talking about a world always trying to help the Lord to save people. The Lord said there wasn't anybody to help. Whose word are you going to take for it? <laughs> the Lord's word? Well, the words of men out here. You know. He says, I looked and I wondered that there was none to help. Therefore, based on that, he said, my own arm hath brought salvation unto me. I'm glad to tell you God didn't need any help. If I looked for the help that he's talking about here, I wouldn't find anybody qualified. They didn't have the ability to help. They didn't have the desire to help. But Jesus Christ did. He came from heaven. He's the arm of God in this situation right here. Therefore, my own arm, Jesus Christ, my own arm, hath brought salvation unto me. For as the children of the of flesh and blood, he, Christ, likewise, took part of the same. That's part of the mystery of godliness, how God could be manifest in the flesh. I can't explain all that uh, like I would like to, but I can believe it just as strong as you can. <laughs> and you can believe it just as strong as I can here this morning. That had actually happened. That actually took place. You see, God was manifest in the flesh. For as the children of partakers of flesh and blood, he likewise took part of the same, that he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. That's why he came to destroy the devil. You say, well, it don't look like to me the devil's been destroyed. Oh, he has been. Uh, his, his time is coming, I can assure you that. His time is just around the corner. All right? So he destroyed him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Here's another enemy that the Lord Jesus Christ destroyed. When the Lord Jesus Christ came out of that tomb after three days and three nights, you know what he destroyed there? He destroyed death. He destroyed the grave. He conquered death. He conquered the grave. And that's another enemy he took care of for us. All this was necessary and needful for him to lead lead captivity captive. When he got it all done, he destroyed the world. He destroyed Satan. He destroyed death. He destroyed the grave. Anything and everything, brother, in the human nature of mankind, uh, my human nature, it just bothers me daily. I, I wish I could get away from it, but it wants to go with me everywhere. It, it, I just went to Knoxville, Tennessee to preach Friday night and two times Saturday, and he went with me all the way up there. He went with me to church up there. He came back with me all the way back down here. I had problems with him going, problems while I was there, problems coming back. I've had all kind of problems with him here this morning already. Don't you think I wouldn't lock him up With a dozen padlocks, if I could, where he would never bother me again, I'd do it if I could, but I know I can't. But I know this, the Lord Jesus Christ has taken care of that as well. Yes, he has. Thus, therefore, he has said, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, just like God brought Israel out of the land of Egypt without the loss of one. He went down and got captivity and brought them out and made them captive to him, you see. But that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Aren't you glad to be a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ? (laughs) That's not a bad thing. That's what Paul said in the first part of this chapter right here. Therefore, I say to you as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't mind being a prisoner of the Savior. I don't mind being in captivity to the Savior. He led captivity captive. And I'm telling you what, nobody's going to be able to ever get you out of his hand. You're his captive this morning and you'll always remain his captive. That's a good thing. Oh, Jesus, in John chapter 10, as he was speaking to the Jews, he said, I'm the good shepherd of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. They hear my voice and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Why? Because he holds them captive in his hand. They shall never perish. And no man can pluck them out of my hand. And my father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man can pluck them out of my father's hand. Why? Because they're captive in the hand of God. I'm telling you, my hands are a little bit on the weak side now. Uh, they, They never have been powerful hands, but they're a little weaker now than before. I find myself every once in a while dropping my keys, dropping a remote, dropping something. I'm just trying not to drop dishes. Uh, I don't want Karen to be on me about that. So I don't want to drop the dishes, uh, especially if something's in it good. (laughs) But anyway, um, I I, I have a tendency to drop things. But I'm telling you, God's hand is not like my hand. God's hand never has been anything less than omnipotent and powerful and strong, and nobody can take you out of the hand of Christ. When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. And he gave gifts unto men. He didn't just do the work of redemption, he, he went beyond that. And he gave gifts unto men gifts that men could not acquire, gifts that man, men could not buy, gifts that men could not go and find on their own. He gave gifts unto men. He tells us what the gifts are, and he gave some apostles. Now, there were multiplied many disciples, but there were only 12 apostles. And in the book of Mark, chapter 1, you're going to find where the Lord Jesus Christ went to a man all night in prayer, and then the next morning, he chose 12 men from those disciples for his apostles. Now, there's two, three points in that. Number one, these apostles didn't volunteer for the job. These apostles, uh, you know, uh, uh, didn't get into office any other way than God sovereignly choosing them from among the disciples. Christ did it. And before he did it, he went into a mountain and prayed all night long. I tell you, I've never prayed all night long. I haven't. I've gone to bed praying, and I woke up in the morning and started praying again, but I didn't pray during those hours in between. How about you? I, I wish I could say I prayed all night long, but I, I can't say that. I've read of the old uh, uh, preachers, you know, 100, 200 years ago, and I'd read about how they spent several hours at a time in prayer. I can't do that. I've tried. My mind will start wondering. I'll start daydreaming. I'll get sleepy one thing or another. Now, I wished I could. I wished I could, but I, I just haven't done it yet. I guess I still got opportunity between now and whenever time I leave this world. Jesus prayed all night long. If the Savior felt it necessary and important to pray and to pray all night long, how important it is for us to pray as well? And notice exactly what He did after that prayer, uh, you know, after He prayed all night long, what was the next thing He did? He chose 12 men out of those disciples for His apostles. The word apostle means sent, means sent for a special, th- special thing. And so He gave gifts to 12 apostles. We don't have apostles today. The apostles made up part of the foundation of the Lord's church. You read in the second chapter of Ephesians, just a little bit earlier than this, he says, "Unto the Gentiles you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens of the household of faith, being built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone." Now I'm telling you, the church of the Lord and Jesus Christ has a solid foundation, doesn't it? That foundation. It's made up of the teachings of the apostles and also the prophets. Now, those prophets were given... Well, let me get back to the apostles just a moment. God gave those apostles spe- a special gift where they could do special things that no man can do today. Now, you can find people who call themselves apostles today and they're just not being truthful. There is no apostle today. One of the requirements of an apostle was he, he had to see the Lord Jesus Christ. After his resurrection... And they all saw it. But there came a man down the road who didn't see it like the other eleven did. His name was Saul of Tarsus, but he was caught up to the third heaven after his experience on the Damascus Road and became the apostle Paul. He was called to the third heaven and he saw the resurrected Christ. I'm telling you, Paul was as qualified as the other eleven were. And the Lord gave them special powers to authenticate their apostleship. So there can be no question they were men of God, sent of God, to do the job God sent them to do. It was their responsibility to go and establish churches and constitute churches, etc. And Paul had three missionary journeys, as is oftentimes referred to, where he went and started churches like the church at Philippi, and the church at Thessalonica, etc., etc. Then he says that there were prophets. Now normally people think of a prophet as being somebody that can foretell future events. And we read primarily about the prophets in the Old Testament, but the scripture speaks about prophets in the New Testament. Now, remember this. When the church was being established with the apostles and the prophets uh, uh, being the foundation of it, they didn't have a complete New Testament. They didn't have a Bible like you've got. They had the Old Testament. And God used some of the apostles to write the New Testament. But God gave them the special ability, the special insight to reclaim the special truths of God's word when they didn't have a Bible to read and to study from. Now, I'm not an apostle. Now, I'm not a prophet. They don't exist anymore. There's no purpose for them anymore, no need for them anymore. So what else am I supposed to do? i suppose I to study the Word of God. Paul told Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. In contrary to what my good friend, Brother Brian Cook, tells me from time to time, I only work one day a week. <laughs> he likes to tell me that. <laughs> I know he knows better. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> a word that need not be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of truth, it takes diligence, it takes time, it takes reading, it takes study, it takes word de- uh, study, it takes comparison, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and a man's got to have time to use his mind in the right manner, in the right way. And I thank Bethel Primitive Baptist Church here this morning for giving me that opportunity as your pastor. If it were not for you and your generosity. And your faithfulness, your dedication, and your understanding of these things to be able, you know, to respond in a way that frees me up where I have the time to use my mind. I wouldn't have the time to do it. Study and show thyself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of truth. I'm glad to tell you, I've never tried to divide truth from error because error doesn't exist in the Bible. But they have to rightly divide the word of truth. Is it a wonderful book, miraculous book, amazing book? It can't be read just like an ordinary book. He gave gifts unto men, and he gave some apostles, he gave some prophets, and he gave some the gift of evangelism. Now, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 5 to do the work of an evangelist. Now, evangelists are not what normal people think about what an evangelist should be. Most people think an evangelist is somebody who goes around the country traveling a lot and preaching a lot. But a true evangelist is somebody who takes the gospel to an area where the gospel does not exist. It's taking the gospel to an area where there's no church and there's no gospel. Breaking new ground, in other words, going to areas that maybe, uh, again, and this was done a lot more a century or two centuries ago than it's being done today. So he gave some evangelists the middle word, in the middle letters in the word evangelist spells angel. Evangelist, angel's right in the middle of it. What's the definition of an angel? Angel's a messenger. So he gave some evangelists. You'll read in Acts chapter twelve a man named Agabus that was a prophet. All right, I mentioned this a while ago, but prophets. Do not exist anymore. No apostles, no prophets. But notice one that does still is still here: Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. Every every building has a cornerstone, and Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of His church. Now, when you read about the church in the Bible, you're going to find where the word "church" is used in two different ways. One way has reference to the triumphant church, that is, to the captive. Uh, that you know uh, the captivity, it was led captive. that's the triumphant church. every child of grace, every heir of promise, every elect child of God that belongs to the Son given to him by the Father are part of that triumphant, invisible church that's going to be all in glory some sweet day. And then there's what we call the visible church, the, the militant church or the visible church that Jesus Christ established here in Matthew 16, 18, said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. The true church of the Lord Jesus Christ is built upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's built upon His sovereignty. It's built upon His omnipotence, His omnipresence, His omniscience. It's built upon uh, the finished work of the Son of God. Oh, how we should rejoice in that statement of our Savior when He says, I have finished the work. He either did it or He did not. What was the work he came to do? He came to save his people from their sins, and they're either saved or they're not saved. There's this man one time, he came up to him, this preacher, and he's, he was wanting to solicit soliciting for money. And uh, he said, well, who do, what, what organization do you belong to? He said, I belong to the Invisible Church. He said, where does this Invisible Church meet, and who's the pastor? He says, I belong to invisible church. He says, and you're not in the church because I belong to invisible church. So the man says, well, here's some invisible money to take use of your invisible church. <laughs> this is the visible kingdom. This is the visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ that I believe meets on a regular basis to worship Him in spirit and also in truth. And God gave gifts for that. He gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, he gave the evangelists, and then he gave pastors and teachers. Now, the word pastor means shepherd. And throughout the word of God, we find that the analogy that God has given us of the local assembly, the militant church, it represents the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is an analogy of a shepherd and sheep. And the shepherd has responsibility of leading sheep, guiding the sheep, protecting the sheep, and feeding the sheep. Look in Acts 20, 28. Paul is meeting with the elders of Ephesus. He says unto them, he says, Take heed unto yourselves. Feed the flock of God which is among you, whom the Holy Ghost has made you the overseers thereof. We believe in the providential dealings of God to put the right man at the right place so that uh, there can be a a harmonious and united uh, uh, work and labor together, you see, in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, Feed the flock of God. The Lord's people, you, as you come here on a Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Sunday night, whenever it might be, you need to hear the word of God. That's food to your heart and food to your soul. The gospel is unto you what natural food is to the body. That's why the Lord said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. How many words? Every word that proceeds out of his mouth. We don't live by those words. It gives us strength. It gives us encouragement. It gives us nourishment, does it not? It builds us up to the most holy faith where we can uh, face the trials and tribulations of another day, face the challenges of life which are daily in this world here. You need spiritual nourishment and instruction. That comes from hearing the Word of God proclaimed by a spiritual cook in the house of God. We were talking, me and uh, Elder Mark Quarles up there at lunch, and we were talking about uh, some of these things right here, and he you know, he says, you know, the message you preached this morning, he says, you know, about a, a 40 minute message this morning probably took nearly a lifetime to put together. And I understood what he was talking about. It takes hours and hours of study sometimes to present a 30, 45 minute message or discourse. Same thing, there's so many analogies. I want to preach on this sometime before long of the analogy of a cook preparing a meal to a minister preparing a gospel message. But I'll say this much. When you sit down to eat at the table of a good cook and you finish your meal up in about 20 minutes and get up and leave, she probably took four or five hours to cook that food and get it on the table. And it wouldn't hurt one bit for you to get up when you get up and say, I appreciate the effort. (laughs) I appreciate what you've done. The meal was wonderful. Now, if you never encourage a cook, how long do you think she'd keep cooking for you? <laughs> i got to get off of this, Well, I'll be on it now. <laughs> he gave pastors and teachers, shepherds for the flock, teachers to teach the Word of God. And three reasons right here, and notice this, is for the perfecting of the saints. Not to make saints, only God can make saints. The word saint is part of the word sanctified that Brother Tim spoke about this morning. And you know what, uh, what a lot of people think about how you are made a saint? They think you are made a saint after you die and X amount of time goes by and your life has come up for examination and you pass the standard of what's ever been set, then they might grant you sainthood. I got better news for you than that. I got a lot better news for you than that. Every one of you here this morning are saint. You've been made a saint by the Spirit of God, by the love of God, by the work of God. You are a saint of God. But I'm trying to help perfect you. (laughs) You need a little perfecting. You need a little maturing. You need a little uh, completion, you see. And that's what the purpose of the gospel is, for the perfecting of the saints and for the work of the ministry. Again, it sounds like the ministry's work, according to that statement there. The work of the ministry there's the work of studying the Word of God, the work of preaching the gospel, the work of carrying out the ordinances of, of the church, the, the work of counseling and encouraging and trying to help God's people along last pathway for the perfecting of the saints and for the work of the ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ. The word edify means to be built up. It, may, it comes to the word for edifice. You know, edifice is a building. It's a structure. Not every building is an edifice. It has to be a special building. But you're a special people. (laughs) The Lord's people are special people. You you are the temple of the living God, and God dwells inside of you. But you know, these gifts that God gave was for for the perfecting, the maturing, the completing, uh, uh, you know, uh, of the saints of God. And for the edification of the saints of God. And for the work of the ministry, that you be not children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes down the pipe. Uh, you know, you know, like the wind <laughs> blows the water and the waves back and forth and the leaves back and forth. That's the way a lot of God's people are. They're here one day and there the next, one thing and another. But the gospel will ground you and establish you, again, like Brother Tim spoke about, the importance about that. You need to be rooted and grounded so when the winds of life blow hard against you, brethren, you can stand fast against them. We've had some strong winds in the last couple of months, haven't we? Seen a lot of trees topple over. A lot of shingles blown off the roofs. A lot of debris here and there. Some trees were able to stand it and some couldn't. Some had a better root system than others did. Some had been planted and planted properly. And they were able to withstand the winds that came along. And God's people need to be planted, rooted, and grounded I just want to tell you this morning, conclusion here. The Lord Jesus Christ ascended up on high, and He led captivity captive, and you'll never be taken out of His hand. He led captivity captive. He gave gifts unto men. The gifts He gave unto men have nothing to do with your eternal relationship with God, but they have everything in the world to do with your peace and happiness and joy here in this world. And for God to get all the praise and all the honor and all the glory. Truth honors God, untruth does not. Uh, and I'm telling you this morning, what honors God? Uh, what, you know, when Jesus came, he, he came and suffered great humiliation. But when he ascended up on high, he experienced great exaltation, did he not? He deserves to be exalted in the word as well. He deserves the greatest praise that we can give to him. He deserves our best efforts. He deserves for us to be in the house of God and sing with all we got and praise Him forever and forevermore here in this world as long as we live in this life. He deserves, brethren, to have men pray fervent prayers. He deserves for the gospel to be preached concerning Him. It's good news and glad tidings concerning Jesus Christ, His person and His work. If it wasn't for Him and His work, we wouldn't have a hope in this world. We could just not worry about the afternoon service and get it over right now if you wanted to. But I know you got a little clock inside that says it's after 12 o'clock. And I'm hungry. (laughs) So we'll draw a line right here and uh, close it out. What do you got, Brother